Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. One of the things that we find in the book of Hebrews that causes many people to not preach through the book of Hebrews is, are all these warning sections. Uh, chapter 6 is the big one. And we'll deal with that in just a couple of weeks. But chapter 3 also has a warning. We've already seen a warning in chapter 2. And, and the key is that a lot of people look at those and they don't, they don't spend a lot of time thinking about them. They just get scared of them. Because it sounds like the writer of Hebrews is saying something that we really don't want to hear, especially as Baptists. Uh, it sounds like he's saying some things that we would rather just uh, not, not consider even, not even ponder any, because it could be very shaky to our faith and very shaky to our own understanding of some things. And I want us to think about that today. As a matter of fact, today won't be quite as much pure exposition on this as I will uh, next week probably maybe I'll get through that part but I, I do want us to look at some some ways of looking at these verses ways of looking at these warning passages that I think are very important for us to deal with and understand and consider but hear the word of God as I read from Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 19 take care brethren that there not be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance until the end, firm until the end, while it is said, and back to, to Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me in the, in the wilderness. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now, the, the warnings here are strong. I mean, in, in verse 12, take care. That's a very strong statement. Look out. Be careful. Guard this very carefully in your own life. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, and a lot of people have pondered, who is the writer talking to here? Some have thought that he was talking to, to unbelievers. Matter of fact, some of the old line reformers, Gill and, and some of those said, oh, he's talking to non-Christians who are around the church that the Hebrews are a part of. And he's saying to them, you better be careful because you're playing on thin ice. And if you don't believe, if you have an evil heart in yourself, you're going to fall away. You're, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. You're not going to inherit eternal life that God has promised if you don't believe, if you have this evil, unbelieving heart. Spurgeon came along and he said, no, I, I think Gill, who was one of his predecessors and one of his mentors, so I think, I think Brother Gill is wrong. Uh, and Spurgeon said, while there's a grave warning here that is talking about people not entering the kingdom, we have to understand that this letter is written to believers, or at least to professing believers. 
to those who are within the church, those who are professing Christ at least externally at the moment, and yet who may be in danger of not entering into the rest because they are merely involved in church. They're merely involved in the fellowship. They're merely involved in the community, and they've never had an, a real encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. They've never truly trusted Him. They've never truly put their faith in Him. They're just believing among the believers. And, and their belief is shallow. Their belief is spurious. Their belief is a false belief. I believe the warning here is to those who are in the church. There are those who are, are professing Christ. There are those who are saying that we are a part of the body. But yet, as we'll see in just a few minutes, there are a lot of ways of understanding what the writer is saying here in talking to those individuals. But I think if we come back and say, well, he's, he's not even talking to believers here, we miss the whole point. So we have to come to answer, ask the question, well, what is he saying? He says, be sure that you don't have an evil, unbelieving heart because that will cause you to fall away from the living God. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean down in verse 19? See to it that, that, they, were, see that they were not able to enter into, the, into his rest, that is God's rest, the promised land. Again, he's still using the Israelites here, the, the children of Israel, as a negative example of, of who people were that professed God in the Old Testament. He used Jesus as a perfect son who was obedient. He used Moses as a perfect servant who was obedient. And now he comes and he uses Israel, the people of Israel, and saying they had some problems. They weren't obedient. They didn't follow. And they didn't believe. They, they had an evil, unbelieving heart. He says, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In your, in your Sunday school lesson a few weeks ago, I think there was a discussion on that coming out of, of the Old Testament, maybe out of Numbers, where it talked about assurance being a, a corporate thing, not an individual thing, but a corporate thing. And I'm not sure I buy that completely, but I do buy this. There is a responsibility that we have to one another to... to to uh, encourage one another in our walk with Christ and to call into question relationships or call into question situations in another believer's life that seems to indicate that they don't belong to Christ. There is a sense in which we are responsible for one another. There's a sense in which we are our brother's keeper. There's a sense in which there is this communal relationship of salvation that we as Baptists have forgotten and have, have not dealt with quite enough, I don't think. No, no, we've all made it individualistic. It's all about me and Jesus. As long as me and Jesus are all right, that's all that matters. But the Scripture is not like that at all. The Scripture says it's, a, it's you coming to faith in Christ and then entering into a body relationship, entering into a communal relationship with other believers as a family. And you come together and you spend that time together. And you don't just sit around and drink Kool-Aid and eat cookies together. But the, the fellowship that you have is a fellowship of admonishing one another and caring for one another and praying for one another and encouraging one another. I mean, there is this relationship as a family that has great, heavy responsibility for one another within it. Just take the, old, take the New Testament. Take the writings of the Apostle Paul as he talks about and builds this whole concept of church and follow it through and see what Paul says every time he uses two little words, one another. Because the one thing he makes very clear is we are in this thing together. We are a part of this thing together. 
You're not an isolated Christian sitting on an island somewhere and saying it's just me and Jesus and that's all that matters. I'm just going to do my thing with Jesus and I'm not going to worry about the church. I'm not going to care about other believers. It's just me and Jesus. That is not biblical Christianity. Never has been. It might be a type of churchianity that we have fallen into. It might be a type of cultural religion that we have fallen into but it's not biblical Christianity. He said, listen, while it is still today, you know, encourage one another while it's still today. You don't have tomorrow. You don't have the future, but you do have today that you, you encourage one another not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you know the most deceitful thing in the world is sin? Sin deceives us into believing we're something that we're not. Sin, if it has a root and has a hold in our life, causes us to say, well, you know, I'm okay. I'm better than so-and-so. And usually we start comparing with other people and say, well, I know I'm better than, than that person who they profess to be a Christian. They're even a deacon or maybe even a preacher, or, or, and I'm better than they are. That's sin deceiving us into saying, well, as long as I can just keep a little bit better than somebody else, then surely I'm all right with Christ. When it may not be the case at all. Sin is very deceitful. He goes back to Hebrews and he says, you know, today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his word, do not harden your hearts as those Israelites did at Meribah and Massa. Don't harden your heart like it was when they provoked me in the wilderness. It's interesting, Jesus uses, I mean, the writer here uses the word for God of provoked. They provoked him. They, they pressed him to the point. They they challenged him, if, as it were, by believing in themselves rather than trusting in him. And that's always problematic. And then he just uses that wilderness experience to talk about it and said, God swore, you know, and, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Those who provoked him, those who had evil and unbelieving hearts, those who trusted in themselves rather than trusting in God, they weren't able to enter into the promised land. Matter of fact, the Israelites had to wander for 40 years till every single one of them died off. Now, granted, God could have just said, I want to get you only in the promised land. I'll just kill them all right now. He could have done that. But he didn't. Because he said everybody else in this community relationship needs to learn, needs to learn from the sin of those who disbelieved. So everyone that was an adult living in that generation as they wandered began to die off and they never entered into the promised land until all those had died off and there was a new generation whom we would hope would trust God not have an evil heart not have a disbelieving heart but would believe him completely we find out that doesn't always happen like that doesn't always turn out like it should be and, and what the writer here is warning these this church about what he's warning these Hebrew Christians about is listen you need to keep your eyes firmly fixed on Christ you need to keep your eyes firmly fixed on the future you need to be walking together in relationship with one another and relationship to Christ moving toward that final destination of entering into his perfect rest which is heaven which is in his presence which is the being relieved of all the burdens and all the troubles and all the problems of this life. But that is only in Christ. 
And that is only in a relationship with Christ, in relationship with his body, in relationship with his church, where we can build on that assurance and encourage one another. So it is a communal thing in a very real sense of the word. Now, the church can't get you in. You can't have assurance and you can't have salvation just because you come sit in a chair or, 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 or go to Sunday school or, or come to worship and sing all the songs and, and, and get all the tunes right and even say certain things or pray certain prayers. That's not the issue. The issue is, is what is your heart like? Is there an evil, unbelieving heart or is there a righteous, believing heart that comes because the righteousness of Christ alone has been imputed to your heart, imputed to your life through the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of heart do you have? That's where the real issue comes. So we look at him, we say he's warning believers here. He's giving them a warning, and I think it's a very real warning. At least he's, uh, he's, he's warning those who are identifying with the church of Jesus Christ. But what is he saying? I think we have basically three options when we're looking at all these warning passages. And I'll not always come back to, to talk about the, the, the three options, but they, they stand for all three particular passages, all the passages that relate to the warning things. The first option is this, that we have people here who have been born again, who have come into relationship with Christ, and yet who are in danger of and perhaps might even become unborn again. In other words, they're born again, they have a relationship with Christ, they're going along and, and, and something happens, they develop an unbelieving heart, an evil heart, and they move away and they lose the salvation that they had. That's pretty much the Wesleyan view. Methodists hold to that. Uh, a certain Church of Christ groups hold to that. Other, other religious groups that are influenced by Wesleyanism hold to that and, and, and some Baptists have come to, to subscribe to that not out of their Baptistic background but just out of their understanding of this but I don't believe that's what he's saying and I'll tell you why in a minute the second view is this these are people who are born again but who turn away and apostatize. They, they, they go out from the church and they have no desire for worship. They have no desire for living the Christian life, but they have been born again, and what they are going to lose is their rewards in heaven. Oh, they'll get there, as, as one pastor of Scripture says, uh, as though through fire, we might use the terminology by the skin of their teeth, they get there, but when they, when they get there, there are no rewards. They've lost their rewards. Now, they said the right prayers. They, they prayed the right things at one point in their life, and even though they departed, they, they'll be there. This view is held by those who hold what I call the simplistic view of once saved, always saved. That is, they did something. They prayed a prayer. They walked an aisle. They filled out a card. They went through the baptismal water. So we know because all that took place, they were saved. So once saved, they're always saved. And you know I don't like that terminology, once saved, always saved. I believe it at its deepest understanding. But it's always used so shallowly. 
It's always used to try to give assurance to somebody who has no desire for the things of God. Generally, it's used by parents who have rebellious children who have gone away into sin and deep sin, and they just say, well, you know, I know they're saved, so no matter what's going on in their life, that's okay. That is not okay according to the Word of God. It's not okay according to Scriptures. It's not okay for a child to go away to college and say, well, they're just going through their, their rough years. They're just going to rebel a little bit. They're going to get into sin maybe have sexual relations that they ought not to be having, never ought to be having. Maybe they're going to experiment with drugs and everything else and, and have certain problems. But, but, you know, I know when they were six years old, they prayed a prayer and they were baptized or when they were nine years old. And so I know they're okay. They're not guaranteed of being okay if that's the case, according to Scripture. It's a very serious matter. And just to say, well, I believe they prayed a prayer and they did the right thing, that they're okay. This is a very antinomian view. This is a view that says what God's Word says is real, is really not important, as long as you did something right at one point, one time, early in your life. That's not a biblical view. But it's a view that a lot of Baptists subscribe to. It's a view that a lot of Baptists say, well, and I just believe once saved, always saved. And so they were saved, and now they're always got to be saved. I do believe that's true. If they were saved, they will remain saved. But I believe there will be evidence of that salvation. It won't look as though they are not. You see, these are the ones who say, as long as you say the right words, it doesn't matter whether you have a changed life or not. But the Scripture seems to indicate that being born again is not only this, this magical assurance for heaven, but being born again is this changed life. Behold, all old things are passed away and all things are become new is what the Apostle Paul says. There's a newness of life. There's a new quality of life. Then there's a third way to look at this. And that is that the writer of Hebrews is saying to these Christians, listen, perseverance, entering into his rest and continuing to the very end, perseverance from the time of salvation until the time of of uh, your death or the second coming, whichever comes first, is evidence of what has taken place in the past. Perseverance is evidence of what has taken place in the past. When I was 12 years old at East Aboga Baptist Church, Jimmy Hugh, and Tom, and Donna, and scores of other people were going forward and making professions of faith. And they were getting baptized. And here was old Bill, or Billy then, sitting there in the pew saying, you know, I, I got to do what they got to do. So, so I went through all the motions. I, I prayed the right prayer according to what my pastor told me to pray. I prayed it sincerely in my heart as best I knew how. I, I walked the aisle. I signed the card. I joined the church. I was baptized. And at 12 years old, I was declared sanctified and secure. And I was lost as a jaybird. And for a year or two, it went okay. Things were fine. And I kind of like to keep up the churchy image because I think I've told you before, mothers of girls I wanted to date really like that. And so I may go into church on Sunday morning after a rather rough Saturday night, but I was there with smiles on my faces so that all the mothers could see me. That was important to me. But I didn't know the Lord. I didn't know Christ. I'd 
prayed a prayer, made a decision, been baptized, been through all of that. And then when I was a freshman at the University of Alabama, God does work there occasionally. When I was a freshman at the University of Alabama, I was, I was out on campus one day, and this blind guy walks up to me. I, I don't know, but I just think there is some irony in this. But this blind guy walks up to me with another guy, and the blind guy asked me if I, if I was a Christian. I know the answers. Oh, yes. I'm a member of East Aboga Baptist Church, baptized when I was 12 years old, prayed the prayer, did this, did that. And, and then he asked me this question, which I think is, iron, is ironic because it's bad theology in my view today. But he said, well, have you experienced the, the, the joy of the Spirit-filled life? And he showed me these three circles. And one circle was a, a person with Christ outside their life, and their life was in total disarray. And a, another one was a circle with Christ inside the life, but the ego on the throne, and the life was all in disarray. And, and then there was a third one that was, you know, Christ sitting on the throne, and everything was ordered just perfectly. And he said, do you fit in one of these? I said, oh, yeah. And he said, which one? I said, that middle one? Christ is in my life. I'm running the show. It's all that matters. Well, is your life all confused like this? Well, no, mine's really not. I run it pretty well. I'm really happy. I'm not confused. I'm not, I'm not uh, worried about disorder in my life. I'm, I'm pleased with where things are. And I went on my merry way. And they were satisfied that, well, poor guy, there's a, there's a Christian, but he'll never have the abundant life. God began to work in my life. I kept seeing those circles when I was sleeping. Christ outside of life, Christ in, but ego on the throne, Christ in and on the throne, and everything perfect. And I started thinking, wow, you know, what is, it, what is this all about? And one night in January, when I was walking out on the quad, I was supposed to be studying for finals. This was back when they had finals after Christmas break. Dumbest thing education ever did. But I was out, supposed to be studying for an economics final, and I was out walking on the quadrangle in the rain, 2 o'clock in the morning because I couldn't quit thinking about that question the blind guy asked me, are you a Christian? Do you know Christ? And every time I heard that question coming from that blind guy, I heard myself saying, oh yes, I was baptized, and I prayed the prayer, and I did everything just right, and I knew in my heart that something was drastically, desperately wrong. Spirit of God began to work on my life. And I sat down under Deanie Chimes and I started crying out to God and said, God, I believe if I die right now, I'll split hell wide open. Because I don't know you. Lord, I want to know you. And I realized the grace of God was effective in my life that night and the Holy Spirit applied salvation in my life that night. But from the time I was 12 and the time I was 19, I'm convinced I was as deceived as could be. And I think that's the type of person that the Hebrew writer is, Hebrews writer is speaking to here. In my humble opinion, this is the biblical view that perseverance, continuing to the end, is not something you do and something you work at and something you hopefully accomplish, but perseverance to the very end is evidence that something really took place in your life at some other point, that you really were saved so you could stay saved and continue to show that for all of eternity, especially for all of this life. 
You know, a, a lot of people say, well, man, why is that? I said, it's because you have to look at the totality of Scripture. Now, if you just take these verses, you're going to come up with the idea that, well, God's, God can lose you. He's not really strong enough to keep you. But if you look at other passages of Scripture, because you have to interpret Scripture by Scripture, you have to put Scripture alongside other Scripture in order to understand it fully. But if you look at things like John chapter 6, you may not have time to run with me. Just write it down and read it later if you can't. Because I've got to get through this in three minutes. Oh, 33 minutes. 12 is 33 minutes from now. All right. Uh, John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of God. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, Jesus is saying, if the Father has given you to him as a love gift, you belong to him and you'll always belong to him. He'll never cast you out. Eternal life is not temporal life. I'm always amazed by people who think you can lose your salvation because they say, oh, yeah, you can have it, you can lose it, you can get it back, you can lose it again. You know, the truth of the matter is, that's temporal life. That's not eternal life. Eternal life is life that once begins is eternal. It never ends, ever, ever ever if you really have the life now a lot of people don't have life a lot of people have religion a lot of people have churchianity but if you have the life if you have eternal life you have life that will never end or John 10 another example where Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd and he says in verse 27 my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give, what? Temporal life to them? Passive life to them? Life to them if they can keep it? No, I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Or First Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 where the apostle Peter just makes this simple statement. He's talking about believers. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's verse 3. Who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. God, by his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Uh, uh, excuse me. I lost my place here. It's caused me born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, does not perish, does not end, and undefiled and will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. King James there says, I think, who are kept by the power of God who are kept, who are preserved, who are protected 
by God's power. Listen, if you are in Christ, it is God's power. You're in the Father's hand. Jesus is in the Father's hand, and you're in Jesus' hand, and the Spirit's all wrapping up, and you are protected for life on this earth if you really belong to Him. It's not a matter of, oh, I'll obey Him today and not tomorrow. I don't want to be a Christian today. I'll be a Christian next week. I'll... That's foolishness. You are protected. You are kept by the power of God. Or Romans 8, chapter 8, and I could read pretty much that whole chapter I want, but we know, the, we know very well the, the passage that says in verse 28, you know, for all, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But he goes on and says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Those are emphatic statements from Jesus Christ's own ministry that the Apostle Paul has taken and wrapped into one summary sentence and says, listen, your salvation was in the mind of God before in eternity past, and your salvation, if you are in Christ, is secure in eternity future. In God's mind, you have already been glorified. This ain't much of a glorified body right here. And I still struggle with sin. But in the eyes of God, because I am in Christ, he sees me through Christ, and he sees me covered by the righteousness of Christ, and I'm already glorified in his mind. There's no time matter in God. You realize that? God is not limited by time like we are. We see it here and now and say, man, that body's got a lot to do to be glorified. Or God's got to do a lot to that body to be glorified. But in God's eyes, there's no time thing. It's just as secure. It's just as it's just as secure as anything ever could be. And, Paul, and John, after he wrote those things, the words of Jesus in his in his gospel, he wrote in his epistle because the church where he's writing in in First John is a church that's experiencing the same thing the writer of Hebrews is talking about. There are people in the church, sometimes leaders who apostatize. They start believing false things. They go into cults. They, they involve themselves in deep and horrible sin. I mean, you've seen preachers. I can give you some names, some preachers that when I was growing up, were my, they were my role models. I thought, man, if I could just be like them. They now have apostatized. They've left the faith. They're either teaching a false doctrine or they're living in total disobedience to God in sin. And you look at that and say, well, how can that be, man? They preach some of the best sermons I've ever heard. They really, as you say in Alabama, they really shuck the corn with those sisms Getting all my Alabamaisms today. You know, they, they really, they could really preach. And they really sounded authoritative, and they really sounded like, there's one used to say, his voice sounds like the voice of God. You know? But now he's out of the faith. Living in disobedience. What happened? Was he born again and then was unborn? Did he have eternal life? But it really wasn't eternal life. It was temporal life. And, and, and so he, he ought to try to get it back because he once had it. But Hebrews is going to tell us later on, if you had it and lost it, you can't get it back. 
No, here's what John says the problem is. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, they went out from us. They left us. They did that because they were not really of us. They were among us. They were around us. They looked like us. But they never really were of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So go back to Jesus' own parables. He talks about the seed and the soil. And there's some seed that's sown on certain soil that will, will spring up and look healthy and look good, but when the sun beats down on it, it dies because it's really not rooted. It's not a believer. They got religious, they got church, they got emotionally excited, but when the, when the real pressure came of the sun beating down, when the test came, when the trials came, it died. Because it never really had real life. Or, or others, when he says, you know, in, in, in my church there will be wheat and tares growing up next to one another. And you won't even be able to tell the difference in them in many cases. The, the tares will look like wheat. Or he talked another place about how sheep and goats will dwell among one another. And, and, and there'll come a day when the goats will be put on the one side and the sheep on the other side. They'll be separated. But that's for God to do in his timing. Well, what we need to be doing is warning one another like the Hebrew writer warns us. Be warned. Be careful. Be alert. Be on guard. Take care that, you not have, that anyone among you not have an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So when we see a believer, when we see a member of our body, a member of our church, start drifting from the truth, start drifting from a desire to live holy before God, it's our responsibility to try to restore that one. It's our responsibility to go to that one. And in some cases, to maybe witness to that person as an unbeliever it's our responsibility to encourage one another to walk godly it's our responsibility to encourage one another to live the life that God has called us to live in sanctification in maturity we'll talk later on about in, in chapter 6 about coming to maturity that's the goal of Christian life that's the goal of every believer can't just throw it off. We can't just say, well, maybe I'll do it later. Maybe something will happen later. Because you may find yourself, as that kid did at East Boca Baptist Church, playing games, using religion, using church, but never really knowing Christ. I had a joy yesterday of preaching the gospel. And I did Michael Spencer's funeral, his memorial service. Michael, in the last words he spoke to me in the cancer center in London a month ago, looked at me and said, when he, when he I, I use, I say he asked me to do his memorial service when he told me I was going to do his memorial service. He looked at me and he said, just preach the gospel. 
He said, others will say something about me. You don't worry about it. Just preach the gospel. So I had fun yesterday. Because for about 35 minutes, or 30 minutes anyway, I preached the gospel. And, and I saw people who, oh, it resonated with them. And they were praising God for it. And I saw people who were disturbed by it. Because they don't know the reality of the one whose gospel it is. Writer of Hebrews says, listen, be careful, take care, watch out. Beware of that deceptive heart. Beware of the deceitfulness of sin. See to it. See to it that your faith is in Christ, not in church. See to it that your hope is in Christ, not in what your parents believed or believe. Be sure, see to it that you're not just subscribing intellectually to a doctrinal creed. Creeds are important. Confessions are important. I believe in them. I, I stand by them. I love them. But see to it that it's not just an intellectual exercise. The song that Judy played as part of that medley. Lord, I want to know you. Know you in your death and resurrection. Lord, I want to know you more. The Apostle Paul's words to the Philippians that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, suffering is a part of the Christian life. You know, this is the only thing that Jesus promised you and me other than eternal life. Now, you won't get that from watching Joel Osteen or Robert Schuller or Joyce Meyer or any number of other prosperity preachers on TV that tell lies every single week. Jesus didn't promise you a new car every year. He didn't promise you a mansion on this earth. He said he's building one for you if you're his for later, but not here. But he did promise suffering. He said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they crucified me, they'll crucify you. Don't expect a life of ease as a believer. But do you know what happens? We get under, under some kind of trial or some kind of stress and we cry out and say, God, why aren't I? Ha- why, why is it not going like I want it to? And we depart from the faith. Many do. Well, I wanted a life of ease. I wanted a life of, you know, Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. I want abundant life. He's not talking about material abundance there, folks. He's talking about the richness of knowing him intimately. He's talking about the richness of community that comes within the body of Christ, abundantly living together, maybe suffering, maybe struggling, maybe having hard times. All that's that's part of it. Paul said, Lord, I want to know you. Lord, I want to know you in the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering, even being conformed to your death. Lord, I want to know you. That's the gospel. That's what the writer of Hebrews is very concerned that you understand. That you don't buy into some cheap, easy believism. I prayed the prayer, so I'm okay. Now I'm going to do what I want to do for the rest of my life. But yeah, I trusted Christ. Probably did it through a prayer, one way or another, but not a magical prayer. 
prayer of submission, a prayer of, Lord, I need you. I can't make it without you. I've got to have you. Beware. Be careful. Watch out that the deceitfulness of sin doesn't convince you that I'm okay and you're okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is direct and a challenging word. Thank you, Lord, that the word is full and rich and strengthens us as we abide in it. Father, the importance of finishing well is the importance of proving that we really believe. The importance of finishing well is evidence you have given us life, eternal life, and you have protected us and guarded us and graced us and seen us through even when times are difficult because you're our Father. You care for us. You look out for us. You protect us. Thank you, Father. Pray in Jesus' name.